It is a blessing and a good privilege that we've each been given to assemble this evening, as was mentioned at the outset of the announcements. And as thankful as we are for that opportunity, it certainly is a privilege to lift our voices in song as we've done. What tremendous lessons we've already shared by way of those songs, the opportunity for prayer, and certainly for the next few moments to give some deeper reflection to two of the chapters found near the beginning of the book of 1 Samuel. As I mentioned a bit this morning, certainly as you're aware of those puzzles, if you didn't pick one up or didn't have the opportunity for that this morning, there's still some in the foyer. Please keep in mind that they are based on that same translation our youngsters are studying, the New King James Translation. As you study the book of 1 Samuel along with our youngsters who are making preparation for that Bible bowl, hopefully we each can gain a richer appreciation for this little book of the Old Testament and to understand somewhat more fully and more deeply how it fits into the overall scheme of God's inspired revelation. Sometimes it is a bit intriguing, isn't it, that among the 66 books in the Bible, we readily appreciate that each one has a number of messages to share. They're all joined together in beautiful harmony, but they each have a very unique niche, if you please, in the overall scheme of God's revelation. Tonight, as we come to a continuing study of 1 Samuel, it perhaps would be well to recall that as we began that study last Lord's Day evening, we noted the first two chapters in which taking center stage was the birth of Samuel. We saw his beloved mother Hannah, who at first was barren, but she prayed so earnestly that God would bless her with a son, and that he did. And upon the birth of Samuel, we find that he was in fact one that would be dedicated to the service of God. And so it was that his mother, in fact, did that very thing. Tonight, the lessons pick up exactly where that one left off. And we'll turn to chapters 3 and 4 in our study of the book of 1 Samuel tonight. As you turn to those two chapters, you might have noted that the lesson text, the one that Lucas read for us, was in fact the last two verses of chapter 4. We have a bit of material to cover in moving to that particular point. And how interesting is it that we notice the following? As you notice these two chapters as they unfold before us, it would be fair to begin them in the following way. Not many of the details of Samuel's early life are given to us, but we do readily find that he grew and he continued in his earnestness and in his desire to minister under the cause of the God of heaven. We notice immediately in the first two verses of chapter 3 a rather poignant statement. Basically, the text reads as follows. It says, The word of the Lord was precious in those days. There was no open vision. Other translations read that as there was no widespread revelation. This was before the prototypical era of the prophets that one will arrive at later in the Old Testament. At this time, it was a rather precious and highly regarded matter. Prophecy was not an ongoing widespread matter at this time. As you can see in verses 2 and following, the scene then immediately shifts to an estimation of the role that Samuel would play in that widespread revelation that would shortly come to pass. It begins in verses 2 and 3 in the following way. At this time, Samuel was not yet occupying that role of an accepted prophet. However, on one evening, as Samuel was in his place, Eli was in his place, God called Samuel. 
All he made mention of was that name of Samuel. And at the time, Samuel didn't understand the means by which he should respond and exactly what was going on. In fact, upon being called, he went to Eli's place. That is to say, where Eli was and said, For here I am, for that is to call me. Eli said, I call thee not, go lie down again. We notice, however, later that very night, God called Samuel again. This time again in a similar response. Samuel proceeded to where Eli was and again said, Here am I, for thou didst call me. Again, Eli had to urge Samuel, Go and lie down again, I call thee not. Yet a third time, God called Samuel that very evening. This time, Eli perceived that God was calling him. And so this time, Eli gave him some instruction. If he called thee again... Verse number 9 says, This is what you should say, Samuel. Speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. And sure enough, later that night, God called Samuel yet a fourth time. This time, Samuel, being the dutiful servant that he was, and listening to the urging and instruction of Eli, he in fact said, Speak, Lord, thy servant heareth. We then appreciate that in the remaining verses of chapter number 3, God delivered in the next verses the prophecy that was so very telling. If we may paraphrase some of what God shared with Samuel that night. He shared with him the fact that the judgment and the verdict against Eli's house was shortly to come to pass. We had noted last Sunday evening in chapter number 2, God sent a prophet to Eli and forewarned him about the nature of the error of his sons and God's displeasure with Eli for tolerating it. In fact, God had promised on that occasion that not a person, not a man in his house would be old. In fact, we notice now as chapter number 3 had unfolded that God revealed to Samuel that this judgment against the house of Eli was in fact a definitive matter and was to come to pass. You'll notice that Samuel merely accepted what it was that God had delivered. When the morning arose and when the morning came... Eli was curious as to what God had revealed to Samuel the previous night. And so he asked him, Samuel, what did the Lord say unto thee? Withhold nothing from me. He wanted to know exactly, fully, and absolutely what it was that God had revealed to Samuel. In fact, the text then interestingly reveals that Samuel told Eli everything. He did not, in fact, withhold it, cover it, conceal it, change it, modify it in any way, but told Eli precisely that same word of judgment that God had delivered to him the previous night. And the closing verses to chapter number 3, we notice Eli's interesting response. Upon hearing these words from Samuel, Eli said, Let the Lord doeth what seemeth good unto him. And with that, the only thing that remains in chapter number 3 are the last three verses. We notice in them again, in a summary way, says that Samuel grew and that he was established as a prophet in Israel. There came to be a general appreciation that he was the next one to carry, if you please, the message of prophet. And how notable was then the estimation that Samuel would occupy in the nation of Israel. The very last verse... And the Lord appeared again in Shiloh, for the Lord revealed Himself to Samuel in Shiloh by the word of the Lord. God revealed Himself to Samuel, and He was that person that would occupy a very fundamental role. 
if we may note one of the interesting matters. In the history of the Old Testament, we notice those books of history begin with the book of Joshua, and from there the book of Judges, and then the book of Ruth, and then the book of 1 Samuel. We are aware that the kind of government and the kind of consideration that the tribes enjoyed was not a centralized government at this time. Rather, it was God to whom they should look, and it was those judges that were still those that carried the message and that were deliverers of the people of God. We notice that Eli was the second to the last of those judges, numbering 14 in the Old Testament. Samuel would be the 15th and final judge. In so doing, he would occupy a fundamental role in transitioning to a new kind of government that the people will request when we arrive at chapter 8 in the book of 1 Samuel. For now, as we look at some of the stages that close chapter number 3, you'll notice that that statement I've made at the bottom of the slide highlighted again that revelation that very night by God to Samuel. It also takes us to this point. As you can see, Chapter number 4 opens in the following way, again, without any skipping of time, really, at all. The word of Samuel came to all Israel as the opening statement of verse number 1. And then, we notice the record is given about a conflict, a battle, if you will, between the Philistines on the one hand and the children of Israel on the other. So often as we read about the statements in the books of Samuel... We encounter these Philistines and we come to see them as the enemy of God's people. So often they were a thorn in the side of the Israelites and so often they made for trouble. We notice in this instance, verse number 2 reminds us that the children of Israel pitched in one location, namely beside Ebenezer, whereas the Philistines pitched in a little village or beside it called Aphek. Amazingly enough, on this occasion, the Philistines enjoyed a victory. And we immediately learn in verse number 2 that approximately 4,000 Israelites were slain in this initial aspect of the battle. The elders of the children of Israel, as the people did return those that were allowed to from the battle, these elders of Israel were confused, they were perplexed, they were beside themselves with confusion. They wanted to know why it was that God allowed the Philistines to defeat them and why it was that God allowed the Philistines to enjoy victory on that occasion. Beginning in verse number 3, the elders of Israel came up with an idea. It was their idea to do the following. Let us go and fetch the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of God from Shiloh, from between the cherubim, and let us carry it into battle. For surely the God of heaven will grant us victory if we do so. And sure enough, they sent and fetched the Ark of the Covenant and brought it to the place of battle. And as they did so, the battle again proceeded, as the following verses indicate. Much to their surprise, as we arrive at verse number 10, we learned that the Philistines were aware that the Ark of the Covenant had come into the Israelite camp. They heard the children of Israel shout, and they heard them, in fact, ring with excitement. They became, it seemed, a bit concerned, but they fortified themselves. They encouraged themselves. And in verse numbers 10 and 11, the battle pursues again. This time, not only did the Philistines enjoy yet another victory, in fact, a more resounding victory than before. 
we immediately notice several things that took place. I would invite you to read beginning with me in verse 10. And the Philistines fought, and Israel was smitten. And they fled every man into his tent, and there was a very great slaughter. For there fell of Israel thirty thousand footmen. And the ark of God was taken, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were slain. You might notice the rehearsal of just how sore this battle turned out. It might well be regarded as one of the darkest days in all of the Old Testament for the children of Israel. We notice, first of all, the Philistines defeated them. 30,000 Israelites were slain on this occasion. What's more, the two sons of Eli, who were the ones carrying the ark, they were slain. And as if that wasn't enough, that precious ark of the covenant was captured, taken by the Philistines and, of course, taken away into Philistine territory. No wonder, beginning in verse number 12, the aftermath of such defeat brought very shocking news. There was a man of Israel who was not slain, but rather escaped the battle lines, if you please. This man of Benjamin came to the place where the ark of God had been, came in essence to this place of Shiloh. Eli was waiting. It seems waiting with a bit of intensity upon his face. It says, the text does, that in fact he waited a bit impatiently because the ark of God was there. He was a bit uneasy about it being taken into battle, apparently. We notice that when the messenger came, he shared the news that the Philistines had won. He shared the news that the two sons of Eli were slain. And he shared the news that the ark of God was taken. Needless to say, there was a great cry of tumult in the city when that news was shared. And Eli heard it from a distance. Eli, in fact, had them come to him and they, this man shared with him. Also that same news. Isn't it interesting that when Eli heard the news, when he heard what had happened to his sons, most importantly when he heard what had happened to the ark, Eli at this time was 98 years old. He fell off his seat backward, his neck broke, and he died. Eli met his death in such a sobering way. This one who had been the judge of Israel for 40 years, this one who had had such a tremendous role in helping Israel to in fact move at least a little bit forward, he now died in such a terrible way. Fell off again, broke his neck and died. That wasn't the only thing that happened for as the chapter closes. One final observation. Phineas, one of those sons of Eli, his wife was pregnant. And on this occasion when she heard the news that the ark of God was taken... And when she heard the news that her husband had died, she too, in fact, gave birth. She was sent into, into travail. But before she died, she named the son. This son that she bore, she named him Ichabod. That name is such a telling name. And as you can well imagine, it has behind it the notion of a departing glory. That the glory was departed from Israel. Notice again the lesson text of those last two verses in 1 Samuel chapter 4. She named the child Ichabod saying, The glory is departed from Israel because the ark of God was taken and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory is departed from Israel for the ark of God is taken. This was an occasion then when the ark of God was stolen, captured if you please. 
the darkness is only that which is going to lead us into the next chapter, which we will take up on the next occasion. But for now, as we reflect on these two chapters, what might be some thoughts that could assist us to remember them and some lessons from them that might help us be more dutiful servants of God today? May I suggest we could well start in this way. I've entitled this brief subsection as follows. God's consistent and important word. <clears throat> Isn't it again significant that in chapter number 2, God had delivered through some unnamed prophet the fact to Eli that you have been found wanting. You, the failure of you to restrain your sons, your sons' wickedness, the fact that they're sons of Belial, the corruption with which they themselves are behaving, and not only that, the way in which they are encouraging my people to transgress. All of that, in fact, led to his cursing of that family of Eli to the extent that there would not be an old man within the family. Notice again what befell those words that God delivered to Samuel on that fateful night. I am going to do to Eli precisely what I have delivered already to him. I shall pull, in fact, and bring to conclusion and bring to fruition all that I have declared. That seems to remind us in such a powerful way that our God in heaven changes not. His decrees are absolute. The fullness and the realization of what he had said to Samuel was precisely what he had said through the prophet sometime earlier. Cannot we be thankful for a God who is that way? His perfection, His omnipotence leads Him in all ways to appreciate the thoroughness of even what shall transpire and His declarations are absolute. God's important and consistent Word. We read about that on many occasions in the Scriptures, do we not? Not only Old, but certainly New Testament as well. What was it we notice in Romans 2.11? As Paul penned that Roman letter, in fact, making note of that powerful set of ideas to that congregation, it was to them, he said, our God is no respecter of persons. He does not say that which tickles the ears of one, but then says something wholly different to somebody else. Today, our world is certainly an expansive one. Individuals in all places, from here to Russia and everywhere in between. And yet, the plan of salvation, for example... The things that God demands of a man or a woman are the same there as they are here. That's one of the remarkable features of the character of our God, isn't it? Wasn't it on that occasion in Acts the 10th chapter, in verses 34 and 35, when to the household of Cornelius, Peter, a different spokesman on this occasion, nonetheless said, I perceive that in every nation he that feareth God and worketh righteousness is accepted to him. Our God accepts those who work righteousness and who follow His will. Is it any wonder that this book is then so incredibly special? For it is this Word that changes not. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. The famous quotation of Hebrews 13.8. As these words have been revealed, it is still a timeless feature that they have stood this long, and yet we are assured that they shall stand until the very end of time. We read, do we not, that Jesus stated in Matthew 24, 35, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. Peter described it in these words in 1 Peter 1, verse 25. 
Even though the flower of the grass falleth away, we said the word of our God endureth forever. God's important and consistent word. Is it any wonder that we are admonished time and again to fill our lives with it? Thy word have I hid in mine heart that I might not sin against thee. The famous quotation of Psalm 119, verse number 11. As you and I fill our lives with this word and appreciate that it's as needful today as it was yesterday and that it says the same today as it did yesterday, that means that it is so very unique. Our youngsters are called upon to learn the fact quite often that the laws of man can be repealed. That the laws, in fact, can be altered or modified. Our Constitution has been amended many times. Isn't it still a thankful matter? God's Word is not to be amended. It is, in fact, not to be altered in any way like that. But that, that uniqueness leads itself into statements, as you can see there. In John chapter 6, Jesus preached a particularly powerful, penetrating sermon, one that the audience understood to very cut to their heart. Many of them, in fact, it says, turn and walk no more with Him. There still are those today who, due to the harshness of some of the lessons of the Scriptures, wish not to walk anymore with it. But isn't it amazing on that occasion, when Jesus asked His disciples, Will ye also go away? Wasn't it Peter who said, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of everlasting life. It is in this book that we find in that very same chapter, John 6, verse 63. It is in fact Jesus who there said that His words are those that bring life. We mustn't doubt it. But rather, we must in fact give full assurance of life to that reality. God's important and consistent Word. Perhaps the next thought though should be, what must our response to it be? In every case... How was it that Eli encouraged Samuel to respond? When Samuel was yet unaware of what he should do and say, it was Eli who said, verse number 9, Speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. That is what you need to say. What about your circumstance and mine today? Speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. We mustn't have those with clogged ears. We mustn't have those who stop our ears. And Jesus more than once urged those of His generation not to be that way, although He knew they would be. When asked why He taught in parables in Matthew 13, wasn't it in fact for that very reason? There are those who have the desire to learn, but yet to those who only have a pretension to do so. And they in fact will close their eyes and stop their ears. May you and I be far wiser than that. And like Samuel in the days of the long ago, always with readiness say, Speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. Three times in the Scriptures we find statements that seem to ring in a similar fashion in that regard. Here was one of them. This powerful evidence of instruction that Eli gave to Samuel. Centuries later, in Isaiah the sixth chapter on the commissioning of Isaiah, we learn on that occasion that something also sounds so very similar. There a coal was used to touch the very lips of Isaiah. And when Isaiah was ready to respond, he said, Here am I, send me. The very Word of God had charged and challenged Isaiah to the point where he was ready at once to do the bidding of God. He was excited. He was eager. He was prepared and he was ready. Here am I, send me. 
There's a song that we sometimes sing that has that same set of words within it. Here am I, send me. Are you and I ready and eager to move forward and onward with what God has commissioned us to do? There is no greater nor more powerful work than that one. No wonder we're admonished at once to ever be ready to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, to quote Philippians 2, verse number 12. As we can see here, perhaps one final evidence of all of that would occur in the ninth chapter of the book of Acts. It was there when on that road to Damascus that here a bright light shone around Saul, and he, of course, falling to his knees and was made blind. In verse number 6, he said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Three statements. Here am I, send me. Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth all of them admonishing us with a perfect mind and a willing heart to be ready to ever do the bidding of God in that which He has commanded of us. Isn't that a very penetrating thought? And yet Samuel did that very thing. And for a number of years thereafter, he would be the guiding light of godliness among the people of God. He would be the one that would anoint the first king Saul, the one that would anoint the second king David. He would be the one, in fact, who later Saul would be so impressed with him that would try to, in fact, conjure him up after the time of death by virtue of the witch of Endor in 1 Samuel 28. All of that reminds us about the impressive stature that Samuel came to occupy a man devoted to the cause of God who in fact simply said, Speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. As you can well tell in some of the thoughts about that notion, doesn't it remind us of even some of the statements of our Master? It was He too who said in the Garden of Gethsemane in Matthew the 26th chapter, Although knowing very well the price of the crucifixion and the scene of agony that would surround it, it was nonetheless He who would say, let this cup from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. Always desirous that the will of God be done. These lessons that we've learned so far, on the one hand about the power of the Word of God, and the second one about the response of Samuel to it, brings us to yet another one. Reflecting at least for a moment on some of the events of chapter 4, isn't it a rather startling matter that here were elders of Israel, these elders who were desirous of guaranteeing victory. Their decision was, let's go get the Ark of the Covenant. They knew how significant the Ark was. In our studies on Sunday morning, we have in fact highlighted the construction of that Ark. We've highlighted about how much it likely weighed. We've highlighted the materials out of which it was made. We've highlighted the placement that it had amongst ancient Israel. In addition, though, we also now have seen this. These elders of Israel made the choice. Let's go get it and take it into battle against the Philistines. Their thought, surely this will guarantee victory. For God will never allow His ark to be stolen, taken, captured, damaged, or harmed. I suppose they learned a very valiant lesson that day. They learned that God will not be manipulated. They learned that God is simply not a puppet we can dangle at the end of a string. They learned that God was the sovereign ruler from heaven. Some of the thoughts about that might well be some of these. Namely, that God is with those who are with Him. 
Israel wasn't living the way they ought to have been. There was sin in the camp. And God was not to be privy nor privy to that kind of behavior. Merely having the ark there was not a guarantee, for God respects those who honor His will and do so. Isn't that interesting? Doesn't it remain in principle the same way today? God will not be manipulated. Just because there are certain words upon the outside of a building, just because there are certain things that portray perhaps a bit of godliness, it has to come as sincere, devoted service exactly to His Word. God won't be manipulated. More than once in the Scriptures, He reminded mankind about His sovereign will. And when men think they figured Him out often, He proved them wrong. We are reminded here that what Israel's elders no doubt certainly expected not only didn't come to pass, it was a disaster. The ark was stolen, the sons of the priests were slain, and they lost the battle. In fact, it would be many months before that ark of the covenant was returned. Israel would suffer a long time because of it. They learned that service to God must come from the heart. Didn't the psalmist state in Psalm 119 verse number 2, Blessed is the man that seeketh him with the whole heart. We notice that that powerful promise stated in Jeremiah 29, 13 rings so loudly again. It was to ancient Israel, the prophet Jeremiah said, If you seek God with all your heart, you will find Him. You and I appreciate today still the need to do that and not try to play games with God. God doesn't play games. He is the sovereign ruler of all things. And we as humble and dutiful servants have as our commissioning to be that humble and dutiful servant of His. 1 Corinthians 6 verses 2 and 3. It is because of all of that we might conclude that slide in this lesson in the following way. That God's demand of us is in fact that which works certainly for our benefit. He doesn't wish any to be lost. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us, for not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. 2 Peter 3, 9. And wasn't it Paul who said that our God in 1 Timothy 2, verse 4, is a God who would have all men to be saved and to come into a knowledge of the truth? These lessons this evening have challenged us to appreciate that then there's no place for hypocrisy. These elders of Israel thought the presence of the ark, despite their life, would guarantee, but it did not. Is your service from the heart? Is mine from the heart tonight? Perhaps that would be a fair way to close our lesson as we end chapter number 4. We have learned then tonight that there was a dark, dark day in Israel. The glory is departed from Israel. The birth of Ichabod stands as a timeless example that this darkness not only happened then, but certainly could still happen today, in principle, even to those who claim to be followers of Him. Israel was God's chosen people, and look what happened to them. We need to be steadfast and unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58. Tonight, as we've studied these lessons... Let us take a moment to offer a word of encouragement and invitation. As we each analyze and examine our life, what about you and me, my friend? Are you and I those that are also in a period of darkness in our life? If so, it isn't because that Jesus hasn't come. And it isn't because the truth is not available. 
because the Lord has come and the truth is available. And we learn in John 8, 12, Jesus said, I am the light of life. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. If you would like for the light to shine in your life tonight, why not come in initial obedience to Him if that's the need in your life? Exhibit your faith in the following way. Believe with all your heart that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Repent of your sins, confess His great name as the Christ, and be baptized for the remission of sins. If we could be of assistance to you in that way, why not tonight? If you have begun that walk with a master, but at this point you're unfaithful, perhaps like ancient Israel, your life is clouded in darkness, why not come back to your first love tonight? Let us pray for you and with you. In just a moment, all that could be taken care of. If we could assist you this very evening, will you not let us do that? At once, while together we stand and while we sing.